December of 1892. In Tantanula, a rural area of South Australia, where sheep running is the main industry, the locals are living in fear of a mysterious predator. It's been on the prowl for over a year now. Something is slinking into paddocks and helping itself to sheep, leaving behind only bloodied skins and bones licked clean of every last speck of flesh. Guard dogs are terrified of it, and there are rumours it might soon go after bigger prey. One farmer claims to have found his prize bull dead in the paddock, all the flesh eaten off its back. Another says one of his horses was skinned and devoured, and the terrifying question on everyone's lips is, when will this thing become a man-eater? No one's seen it yet, not up close anyway. There's nothing but vague stories of a large animal stalking sheep or prowling around the edges of large properties. The only physical evidence is tracks. Huge tracks, like the paws of a massive dog, although those who have caught a glimpse of it don't believe it's any kind of dingo. It's too big, they say. Too fast. Too strange. Then, on that December day, Someone gets up close to it at last. Walter Taylor and his wife were driving their buggy down a road near their property when the horses suddenly spooked. (coughs) Taylor brought them back under control and saw what had frightened them. A strange animal, which he described as being brown with pale stripes, was slinking across the road in front of him. It was small, only about 60 centimetres tall, he said, and less than a metre long although the tail brought its overall length to one and a half metres. Could this be the thing that was killing the sheep? Before Taylor could get a better look at it, it disappeared into the scrubland and was never seen again. But the attacks on livestock continued. The beast was nicknamed the Tantanula Tiger, and large hunting parties were sent out after it, all to no avail. It was too clever to be caught and it seemed that shooting at it only made it more powerful. A number of men claimed they'd hit it, only for the thing to get up and bound away before they could get close enough to finish it, as if it had never been shot in the first place. The community was under siege, and panic gripped the area. What were they to do? Then the situation got worse. In 1894, the nephew of John Livingston, a sheep farmer in the area, returned from a ride on the property, babbling wildly about the terrifying animal he'd seen. It wasn't a dingo, or a dog, or a small creature with a few stripes. It was a tiger, a real tiger. He'd seen it run off with a whole sheep in its mouth. His account led to a second search, this time with an indigenous tracker on hand, and they found some evidence that something had carried a sheep away. And then later they found the animal's carcass picked clean. They also discovered the tracks of a large animal with claws extended. But it wouldn't be until a year later that the so-called Tantanula tiger was finally brought down. (coughs) A hunter named Thomas Donovan successfully shot a massive animal, much larger than the creature Walter Taylor had seen, but not quite the tiger the hysterical young man had reported last year either. Instead, it was a huge dog, the size of a wolf. And in fact, some people who saw it said it was a wolf. 
Maybe it had escaped from a zoo or the circus, they mused, while others said it was an offspring of a dingo and a feral dog. Whatever the truth, the attack stopped after the animal was shot, although some unscrupulous humans would continue to invoke the story to cover their sheep-stealing activities, and everyone breathed a sigh of relief. (sighs) It was over, and there had never been a tiger roaming the bush outside Tantanula. Or had there? I'm Juliana, and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian. Hello fellow skeptics, thank you so very much for joining me today. As always, I would like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung peoples on whose lands I am podcasting today and I pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. Shout out also to Studio 4 at the State Library of Victoria where this episode is being recorded. For more information or to book the studio yourself, please head to www.slv.vic.gov.au. The tale of the Tantanula tiger, which we just heard, is the first known big cat panic in Australia, but it certainly wouldn't be the last. The idea that there might be lions, tigers or panthers, more on that word a bit later, Lurking in the Australian bush is still with us today and there are whole communities, both online and in the real world, convinced that not only is the bush full of deadly feline predators, but the government is engaged in a cover-up. We'll look at some of these ideas shortly, but let's start by looking at our own native fauna to see if the big cats, if they're here at all, might just be homegrown. While this would be a simple explanation, unfortunately it's also an impossible one. Any wild cat in Australia would be classified as feral, as Australia does not and has never had any native species of big cats. The closest animals would be the thylacileo, the marsupial lion, and possibly the thylacine, more commonly known as the Tasmanian tiger. Despite their cat-like names, Neither of these animals were cats, and they weren't related to cats either. The thylacileo was a massive bear-like predator, actually, although it wasn't related to bears either, and it was completely unique to Australia. It could climb, it had wickedly sharp and opposable thumbs, it was capable of standing on its hind legs, and we believe it probably used its hands to disembowel its prey. It was small compared to the other Australian megafauna at the time, only about 75 centimetres tall at the shoulder, although it did weigh around 130 kilograms. And its jaw was so specialised for killing prey that was more than twice its size that some scientists actually think this is what led to its extinction. Australia had a mass extinction event around 46,000 years ago, so a bit earlier than the more commonly known mass extinction at the end of the Ice Age. And this saw the death of the megafauna such as the giant kangaroos, which are twice the size of a modern red kangaroo. A full-grown male red kangaroo can stand at eight feet tall, so that gives you a sense of what a giant kangaroo might have stood at, somewhere around 16 feet. Uh, The other very large Australian creature that went extinct around this time, along with others, was the Dryptodon, a 
it's like a giant wombat essentially and that could grow as tall as 1.8 meters and it weighed three tons these were the kind of animals that Thylacileo was equipped to hunt and it doesn't seem that it was able to adapt to catching smaller prey and so it disappeared too. The date of its extinction tells us that it absolutely would have interacted with indigenous people. They arrived on the continent at least 60,000 years ago and possibly earlier. But whether people were ever on Thylacileo's menu is debatable. Humans might have been too small for this hyper-specialised predator, but it would have been more than capable of taking down a person. It was long extinct, however, by the time Europeans arrived. As for the thylacine, a dog-like creature, which, again, was not related to dogs at all, it has a brown coat with pale stripes over its back, and it survived on mainland Australia until about 2,000 years ago, although small populations did linger in the backcountry of South Australia and New South Wales until the 1830s. That's important. Keep that date in mind. It survived in Tasmania until 1936. We still actually have photos and video of this creature from that time, when the last specimen died of neglect at the former Hobart Zoo. It refused to return to its sheltered sleeping quarters before the keeper went home for the night, And the frustrated man just locked the enclosure and left. And unfortunately, the last Tasmanian tiger in the world froze to death overnight before he returned the next morning. There's a popular internet myth that this animal was called Benjamin. However, this is just that, an internet myth. This last Tasmanian tiger was not called Benjamin and was in fact a female. The thylacine's demise on mainland Australia, which happened much earlier than its final extinction in Tasmania, has been attributed to two factors, climate change and increased competitions from dingoes, which indigenous people were starting to domesticate for help with hunting and with companionship. In Tasmania, its demise was multifaceted, but the biggest factor was overhunting by European settlers. There's no getting around that. Um, After invasion and the frontier wars in what is now Tasmania, the land was set up as a penal colony. But as transportation waned and more free settlers began to arrive and snap up large lots of land at ridiculously low prices, the thylacine was put under pressure. It liked the kind of habitat that the settlers wanted for their sheep runs. And these newcomers were sure that the thylacine would decimate their valuable flocks. The Tasmanian government offered bounties for the animal based on this belief, although there was very limited evidence that the thylacine ever preyed on sheep. It may have in fact been too small to do so. So this fear that they were going to be attacking the flocks is much more likely to be based on the cultural fear of wolves that was brought by European settlers than actual widespread sheep predation by thylacines. So a dog-like animal in Tasmania would not have been welcome. And the last thylacine was shot in the wild in 1930. And then unfortunately, the species only lived on in captivity for another six years. So despite having two native predators with cat-like names, both extinct now, we've never had native cats in Australia. However, big cats have been in Australia for almost as long as Europeans and their descendants have as they were imported into zoos and private menageries from the early 19th century onwards. This brings us to our first origin story, if you like. 
about how big cats might have found themselves on this continent, perhaps even lurking in the shadows of the bush. As wealth began to accumulate in the hands of the early squatters, the landowners I've discussed in previous episodes, they began to emulate the behaviours of wealthy Europeans. In the 19th century, one of the signs you were truly one of the super rich was to own a large, powerful and dangerous animal. It was a status symbol, proof that you were part of the class destined to rule the world. If you could control one of the most dangerous beasts on earth, you could certainly control the unwashed rabble. (laughs) Big cats were a hot ticket item among those squatters whose wealth had catapulted them beyond even some of their wealthy peers. And they had lions and tigers imported from India, China and South Africa, all British colonies at the time. And they paid exorbitant fees to businesses whose sole purpose was to procure exotic animals to fill the menageries of the wealthy. This was a booming trade in the 19th century. But it wasn't the procuring part that was the problem. It was the keeping part. Safety wasn't something well understood in the 19th century. And these cats were often kept in cages which were too small or too flimsy for them or they were locked in pens from which they either climbed or jumped out. Escapes were actually quite common, and it led to increased calls for regulation of the importation of exotic animals, especially large predators. Australia was still a very agricultural society well into the 20th century, and absolutely no one wanted big cats lurking near valuable flocks of sheep and herds of cattle. The practice of keeping private menageries also began to dissipate as the travelling circus gained more prominence. A little bit more on that in a moment. And people stopped paying to go to the menagerie because it was cheaper to go to the circus. The cost of keeping these animals also became prohibitive for private individuals and regulations about how animals needed to be treated were being tightened. The first meeting of the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals occurred in Melbourne, and actually that was the first one in Australia, in 1871. And by 1881, just 10 years later, an Act for the Protection of Animals was passed in Melbourne, which made it an offence in Victoria to undertake acts of cruelty towards animals. And that law is still in force today, although of course has been updated multiple times over the years. This didn't stop menageries, or circuses for that matter, because the definition of cruelty hadn't expanded as far as it needed to go, but it did show the way public opinion was going. However, by the start of the 20th century, most of these animals were in zoos rather than private menageries, although at this time zoos were not the conservation-focused sanctuaries they are today that keep animal welfare as the primary focus. And the number of private collections of exotic animals was dwindling rapidly. So, in the mid to late 1800s, as the menagerie started to disappear, the cost of keeping big cats became exorbitant and legislation was slowly, slowly beginning to enroach on the squatters' abilities to do whatever they wanted. What did they do? Some who owned big cats simply shot them and wrote off the loss while others undoubtedly abandoned them and some of these may have made their way into the bush. 
So for a short period of time in the 19th century, it would have been true to say there were big cats in the bush. But being released is one thing. Surviving and then establishing a breeding population is quite another. We're going to touch on that a little later. But if you don't like the big cats escaping from the menagerie theory, I've got another one here, which I'll tell you all about after this break. In the mid-1800s, the circus was on the rise. Unlike modern-day circuses in Australia, where it is now, thankfully, illegal to keep wild animals and make them perform, although I must say these laws took far too long to come into effect, shows in the 19th century were full of elephants, lions, tigers, and sometimes even great apes like gorillas. Animals who were exhibited as part of travelling circuses lived in unimaginably horrible conditions in small cages with no enrichment, poor food, not enough water and were trained, quote unquote, to perform tricks by being conditioned to associate disobedience and non-performance with painful punishments. It was absolutely vile and the animals had no ability to express their own natural behaviours. They were stressed, they were scared, they were agitated all the time. Some circuses also who wanted to put on shows with wild animals but avoid injuries to their performers, fatal accidents, did frequently occur in these kind of environments, would sometimes also remove the teeth and claws of a big cat before putting it through this training and it wasn't uncommon for these animals to be starved for a few days before performing to ensure they were at their most aggressive which would draw more crowds and make more money for the circus. Like the private menageries of this period, keeping these animals safely and securely was less of a concern then than it is now. And circuses were completely unregulated in this country until the beginning of the 20th century. Large animals like big cats that were under stress without enough food and water could certainly escape from a circus. And we know that at least a few did owing to the advertisements in the newspapers of the time offering rewards for sightings of an escaped animal and ensuring the public that there was no need to panic. However, more probably escaped than we know of, as these advertisements only tend to appear when members of the public have seen the animal escape, such as a lion who ran out of a tent during a show. Escaped animals were bad business for circuses, and finding the animals was costly. In fact, sometimes it was just cheaper to write the animal off and import a new one, preferably without telling anyone. The other way big cats might have escaped from the circus was through accidents, such as trains or carts overturning, causing badly damaged cages to break and allowing animals to get loose. Uh, Such a disaster actually happened in the United States in 1893, when a circus train in Pennsylvania derailed while carrying elephants, tigers, lions, horses, crocodiles, pythons and a gorilla, among other animals, as well as multiple performers. The train went down a 10-metre embankment after it had been denied braking power while trying to negotiate a tight curve, and the cars carrying the animals were at the front of the train and they were the first to go off the tracks. And they actually fell on top of each other like deadly Lego blocks. They stacked up along the embankment, actually all the way up to the level of the tracks. 
Of the human performers, I don't actually know how many were on the train. The article I read didn't say it. But it did say that only five were killed, which for going off a 10-metre embankment, that's pretty good. Although most of the performers were injured in the crash. But what about the animals? Well, we know the elephants survived, which I think is almost a miracle given that their car was the first one to go off the rails. And they were actually later put to work to help with the cleanup. Uh, The gorilla survived. We know that. There's photos of him, uh, unfortunately, being tied to a tree to ensure he doesn't escape while the cleanup is going on. But 50 horses and two supposedly sacred cows were killed in the crash. We know some of the pythons escaped. And there are locals in the area today who say that large snakes are still seen there with startling regularity. Although some experts have disputed this. And we also know that at least one tiger got loose. This animal didn't survive long. It was shot the next day after it attacked a cow belonging to a local farmer. Unfortunately, there's no clear record of how many animal casualties there were beyond the horses and the cows or how many escaped and were never caught again. Shortly after the crash, three kangaroos belonging to the circus were seen hopping along the edges of a nearby property and brightly coloured parrots made their homes in the trees around town for many years afterwards, just daring their former captors to try and put them back in a cage. No word on the crocodile or any of the other big cats, but if the tiger survived the initial crash, then perhaps the lions did too, although there's no record of that. The cleanup was completed within three days, and a week later, the circus was back on the rails again. There are no records of similar circus train derailments in Australia, but we do know that some big cats did escape from circuses on this continent prior to the introduction of tighter regulations. Could this then be the origins of the legendary tales of big cats in the bush? Could it be both? Big cats breaking out of menageries or released by selfish squatters who could no longer afford to keep them, running alongside with the circus escapees. It is absolutely correct to say that there have been big cats in the bush in the past. These escapes were documented. We know they happened. But the question we need to ask ourselves is not... Did big cats escape from circuses and menageries? Because we know that they absolutely did. But were there enough cats to form a sustainable breeding population? These cats took off in the 1800s. And while the lifespan varies from species to species, no big cat lives longer than 20 years. These escapees are not still running around the bush causing havoc. It's impossible. But could they have bred? It's a tricky question because there are no definitive figures about how many big cats ever escape from either circuses or menageries or reliable figures on the sex of the animals. We don't even have reliable documentation about how many were imported here or came over with the circuses from various parts of the world in the first place. We also don't know exactly what species of big cats were in Australia as the language of the time is actually quite imprecise. In the 1800s, every big cat was called a tiger. But despite this, we know from drawings, descriptions and other types of documentation that most of the big cats seen in Australian zoos, menageries and at the circus were lions rather than tigers. Lions were slightly cheaper to procure at this time and in a time when few people had ever seen a big cat, 
and they couldn't easily discover what different species looked like, it was easy to pass one animal off as another. In the immersion at the start of the podcast about the Tantanula tiger, the people didn't think the animal taking their sheep was necessarily a tiger, but they did believe it was a big cat. The term big cat became popular in the mid-20th century and initially only referred to cats that could roar, so this specifically lions, tigers, leopards and jaguars. But over time, it evolved into the catch-all term we use today to describe large wild cats. And it's actually also true that no one in the community of Tantanula had ever seen a tiger before. That young man who came rushing back to his uncle's house, gasping in terror, saying he'd seen a tiger, he knew what it was, he'd actually never seen a tiger before. He was guessing based on things he'd seen in books, things he might have read, and his own imagination. However, it is true that in Tantanula, they were living in legitimate fear of a predator that was killing their livestock and could potentially begin hunting them. So I don't think we can blame them for exaggerating the story a little bit. But back to breeding. Because we don't have the numbers, we have to rely on other less reliable kinds of data to make our estimates, such as newspaper reports, personal recollections, and diaries. What we do know is that menageries weren't common and they weren't large either. Most squatters who owned a big cat only had one and we don't know how many successfully escaped. As some of you might remember from previous episodes, the squatters' money came from their livestock, mostly sheep and cattle. And I can't actually imagine any of these men being happy about the thought of a predator lurking on their property, threatening the source of their wealth. I actually suspect that if their cat had escaped and they couldn't recapture it, they were more likely to shoot it. Given there were so very few cats in Australia to begin with, and some of them would have been shot as they escaped, be that from menageries or the circus, it's highly unlikely that a male and female managed to meet and breed And even if they did, that population would not be viable for long before severe inbreeding led to its extinction. And that's before we consider how they could have remained undetected when there would have been little in the way of prey except livestock. Most of the menagerie big cats had lived in or near farming areas and those that escaped from the circuses would have been in close proximity to both urban and rural environments. Wild prey, such as kangaroos and wallabies, would have been in short supply, and it's not a stretch to suggest that these cats may not have been the healthiest animals at the time either. They wouldn't have been properly cared for, and may not have been strong enough to hunt something that could escape or defend itself in any case. Wallabies and kangaroos might look cute when they hop about, or if they've got a joey in their pouch, but they're powerful animals. They'd also easily be able to outrun, or maybe outhop, a big cat in a weakened state too. And a kick from one of those animals could potentially kill a predator. I'm going to put a link on my blog to a video of two male kangaroos having a kicking match, so you can just see how powerful these things are. There is no way a big cat is going to be able to take one of those down. Livestock, on the other hand, are relatively defenseless, They rely on simple herding and can only hope for the best if a predator comes along. They need humans or guard dogs to look after them. So any escaped big cats would need 
to prey on livestock. There would be no other source of food. And the squatters and their staff would have noticed pretty quickly if their livestock were being attacked by a pride of big cats. Without a sustainable breeding population, those cats that managed to survive after their escape, and even that wouldn't be guaranteed, wouldn't still be roaming the wilds today. And even if breeding had occurred, the population would have gone extinct by now through genetic mutations caused by severe inbreeding. I'm confident in saying that the escapees of the 19th century are not still with us today. But there is another theory about how big cats might have found their way into the bush. Interestingly, this theory is not only posited in Australia, but it's popular in Britain and New Zealand too. Batten down the hatches, sceptics. We're about to go to war. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Welcome back. What you just heard were two radio broadcasts from the United States on the 7th and 8th of December 1941, respectively. The first broadcast is part of an NBC breaking news report where one of their reporters actually called in and interrupted their regular programming to inform them that he was witnessing Japanese planes attacking the American Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. Interestingly, less than a minute into that report, he was kicked off the air by the emergency services who needed to use the radio frequency for announcements. The second broadcast was, of course, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the 32nd president of the United States, addressing the nation the day after the bombing to inform the American people that they were now at war with Japan. And those recordings come from the G. Robert Vincent Voice Library and the Franklin D. Roosevelt Library, respectively. But what does the bombing of Pearl Harbor have to do with rumours of big cats in Australia? Well, as it turns out, quite a bit. For those who need a quick crash course, the United States had been nominally neutral in the Second World War until the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor in a surprise attack on 7 December 1941. The next day, the US declared war on Japan and began deploying troops across the Pacific. The first US troops arrived in Australia on the 22nd of December 1941, and there were 150,000 of them here by mid-1943. I could do a whole podcast, I could do a whole series of podcasts on the Americans in Australia, but what you need to know for today's episode is that when some of these American units arrived, they brought with them animal mascots from the United States. And some of these mascots? Mountain lions. It's a well-repeated story that some of these animals, both cubs and adult mountain lions, arrived with the US troops. 
In fact, it's been said so often that it's just accepted as a fact. But if you've been listening to the sceptical historian for long enough, you'll know that I can't ever let a good fact go uninvestigated. So, did US troops really bring dangerous predators from their homeland to Australia as mascots? The honest answer is maybe, but probably not. A study conducted by an academic at Deakin University in 2001 interviewed some surviving American servicemen about their time in Australia. Specifically, the interviewer wanted to know if American servicemen, in particular two air units stationed in an area of Victoria that has become a hotspot for big cat sightings since their departure, had brought mountain lions with them. The interviews were conducted in the late 1990s, so this is 50 years after the end of the war, and a lot of these men were in their 80s, including a few who were past 90. Now, this does not make their recollections any less valid. Here's the bit that I found interesting, though. The first question that almost everyone asked when he said, did you bring panthers to Australia, was, do you know what a panther is? It's not a stupid question either. There are no big cats in Australia. And possibly the US servicemen thought that maybe the Australian didn't know what he was talking about. As it turns out, he did. And once that was ascertained, the officers who were interviewed gave very flat denials. No, there were no panthers, they didn't say mountain lions, attached as mascots to their units. And also, the United States Armed Forces as a whole was not in the habit of letting their men keep dangerous wild animals as mascots. They never saw any mountain lions where they shouldn't be, said the officers. Quite a few of them also made the point that a lot of air recruits came from rural areas where mountain lions were seen as dangerous pests and a risk to livestock. As one officer recalled, most of our boys would shoot a panther on sight. This view was repeated by most of the other surviving men interviewed for the study. However, there were some surviving regular airmen who claimed they had smuggled panther cubs into Australia. According to the book Snarls Among the Tea Tree, despite Australia's incredibly strict quarantine laws, some foreign servicemen did successfully get exotic animals here. Given the general confusion of war, it doesn't surprise me that customs was overwhelmed and may have missed exotic animals entering the country. We know from documents that they did get some, but there's no reason to suspect that they got them all. The problem I do have with the idea that American servicemen brought panthers with them, though, is this. How on earth do you keep a mountain lion cub a secret on a shared military base? The airmen who claimed they'd successfully got the cubs into the country were on a shared base in the Gippsland region of Victoria. They were sharing it with some Australian divisions of the Royal Australian Air Force, along with officers and support staff, both American and Australian. Mountain lions grow quickly. When they're born, they only weigh about four kilos, but by their first birthday, females can weigh 30 kilograms and males are pushing 35. By the time they stop growing, when they're about two years old, they've more than doubled their weight at one year. The American airmen were on that base for an entire two years. That's not counting time at sea. Remember, also to get to Australia, these cubs would have had to have been smuggled onto a troop ship, 
kept secret from everyone on board during inspections, snuck into vehicles that took them to the base and then kept out of sight for the next two years. There's no evidence that the Australians on the base ever saw any evidence of a mountain lion or lions and a fast-growing predator that could have been heading towards 100 kilograms would have been damn hard to miss. But proponents of this theory say that the reason no one saw the mountain lion or mountain lions, in some stories there's more than one, is because that as they got too big for the servicemen to look after and keep secret, they released them into the mountainous wilderness of Gippsland. There were claims made by residents at the time of tawny cats seen in the area. But these stories, and the recollections of some very elderly soldiers looking back 50 years, seem to be all that this idea rests on. There's no records of US troop ships carrying mountain lions. And while American units often did have mascots, they tended to be dogs, horses, or occasionally even donkeys. They certainly painted their aircraft with, among other things, ferocious beasts, and stylized renderings of big cats were a common motif. Black Panthers, a phrase we are coming back to in a moment, were especially popular on the sides of American aircraft during the Second World War. But what's particularly interesting about this story is that it appears in other countries that housed American servicemen during the Second World War, including New Zealand, England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, among others. Anywhere that had American troops and also has local legends about mysterious big cats tends to link the two, and there's very little variation in the stories. But let's try to be rational about this. Even if some American servicemen did manage to smuggle mountain lion cubs into the places they were stationed and then release them when they were no longer able to conceal them, could they have established a breeding population? That's the question we always need to come back to. If these stories are true, were there enough mountain lions released by American servicemen for a healthy breeding population to be established? Given we have absolutely zero reliable records telling us if US servicemen even brought mountain lions with them, this is an impossible question to answer. I'm not saying those elderly men were lying when they were interviewed, but I do wonder how much was a memory at that point and how much was influenced by stories and tales they'd heard from other places, other units and other men. Lots of American servicemen claim to have smuggled mountain lions overseas, but there's no evidence they did beyond a few blink and you'll miss it sightings of large cats that were described as tawny. Which is interesting because these cat sightings have one key difference to all those reported today. Before 1945, when people claimed to have seen big cats, they said they were tawny, striped, spotted, or in some other way described their coat. In the post-war world, every out-of-place large cat seems to have one thing in common. They're always black. We're going to talk more about that right after this break. In modern day Australia, claims of big cat sightings are relatively common and they generally follow the same kind of format. Someone out walking spots a large black cat slinking across the path or someone driving down an isolated road sees a huge black cat suddenly dart out in front of them, momentarily illuminated by their headlights. 
Some people say they've gone outside in the night on their property and seen a massive black cat suddenly climb or jump over their fence and vanish. The other common tale is of bushwalkers off the beaten path who see a large black shadow in the distance. Yet more people claim to have heard roars, snarls and screams that can only come from big cats and scientists have been sent endless pictures of supposed tracks and samples of scat. Every cat in every story these days is black. And this isn't just a phenomenon in Australia either. Other countries with stories about what we call alien big cats, that is, big cats outside their natural habitats, not big cats that come from space. They're usually called ABCs, and I'm going to use that term for ease of reference. ABC just stands for alien big cat. But ever since the end of World War II, ABCs have always been black. Now, I'm not sure what changed because if we think back to the pre-war period, even long, long before World War II, back to the Tantanula tiger and other big cat scares of the 19th century, all these cats were described as having coloured coats of some description. They were striped, they were spotted, often they were described as having gold, tawny or orange fur. And now, of course, some species of big cat can be black. They're colloquially known as Black Panthers. They're not quite as awesome as the Marvel superhero, but they're still pretty cool. Now, a panther isn't a true type of cat. It's an American term for a mountain lion, but it's also used generally to describe cats with melanism, that is, having black rather than clearly patterned fur. Now, melanism is a well-documented phenomenon, and it's known to affect 13 of the 37 species of cats, from big cats to their housebound cousins in your street. However, despite it being quite well known, it's rare, and particularly, it can only affect certain species. Now, the most common form of black panthers are melanistic leopards and jaguars. Now, melanism doesn't mean their spots have disappeared. They're just harder to see because instead of having a a goldish coat, they've got a black coat with then black spots on top of it. When it comes to the potential for leopards or jaguars to be running around the Australian bush, though, I'm sceptical. Because of course I am. I'm the sceptical historian. But I have reason to be as well. There are no records of leopards or jaguars being imported to Australia during the time when it was common to have wild animals in menageries or circuses. These animals were harder to procure than lions or tigers, they were more expensive, and they were also a bit less popular. A common trick at this time for circuses who wanted to display lots of different, quote-unquote, big cats, was to buy several lions, or usually lionesses if they could, to try and avoid them growing a mane, And then they'd paint their coats with a pattern that they could use to draw in the crowds. Now, one circus which travelled through regional Victoria in the 1830s claimed to have, and I quote from their advertising material, plain, striped, spotted and black tigers, all in the one show. It was later proven that all these animals were lionesses with painted coats. Now, that doesn't mean to say that jaguars and leopards were never imported into Australia. But it is very unlikely. It was easier, not to mention cheaper, to get a lion or a tiger here than it was a leopard. Interestingly also, when it comes to jaguars, these cats do not do well in captivity. 
even when they are kept in special environments that closely mimic their forest homes. Jaguars live in rainforests. They like warm, dark, damp, moist and quiet spaces. A menagerie on a squatter's property or a cage in a travelling circus would not have been anything like what a jaguar needed to survive. And any of them that may have been brought here would probably have died very quickly. Now, leopards do better in captivity than jaguars, and they can adapt to lots of different climates. But like any animal, they still need proper environments if they're going to be in captivity where they can run, play, hide, and engage in natural behaviours. Of course, if they were being kept in menageries or circuses, they wouldn't have had any of that. We can't say definitively that leopards or jaguars never came to Australia during the big cat craze here. But it is very unlikely. On the other hand, we do know that lions and tigers and bears. I'm sorry, I couldn't resist lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. But some circuses did have bears. But back to the lions and tigers. They did come here. We know that. That's well documented. So it is worth examining at this point whether these species of cats can exhibit melanism. And in the very unlikely event that any escapees were able to establish a breeding population, if any of their descendants could be black panthers. Let's start with lions, because despite some amazing Photoshop and AI-generated images out there, melanism is not found in lions. They're either tawny or white. They're never black. As for tigers, tigers don't exhibit melanism per se, but they can exhibit a trait called pseudomelanism. Now, this is when an overproduction of melanin, which is the hormone that creates dark fur in animals, causes very wide stripes on a tiger. So when we think of tigers, we usually think of them as orange with black stripes. A tiger with pseudomelanism would look like it was black with orange stripes. Now, there's no evidence, however, that tigers can be solidly black. And claims made in the past about black tigers, where they're actually talking about tigers at all and not painted lions, are more likely to be examples of pseudo-melanistic tigers. Something else worth keeping in mind when it comes to the types of cats we call black panthers. As I said, melanism only occurs in 13 of 37 species of cat and only occurs in 10% of any given species that can exhibit that trait. It's very, very rare. And recent studies have also shown that there's a correlation between the environment a cat lives in and the likelihood of that cat exhibiting melanism. Studies of jaguars, for example, living in various parts of the Amazon rainforest found that those jaguars who had territories closer to the centre of the forest, where it was generally darker, were more likely to exhibit melanism than those with territories at the edges of the forest, where there was more light. So this would suggest that there's an evolutionary aspect to melanism too, and it might not be as random as was previously thought. It makes sense for a big cat living in a dense jungle to have a darker coat after all. But there would be no evolutionary advantage, say, for a lion to be black. It would stick out like a sore thumb on the plains of Africa, which would curtail its ability to hunt, and it would also be prone to heat stroke. 
There'd be no advantage for tigers in being solidly black either, much for the same reasons. So, if the circus cats and any descendants couldn't be melanistic, what about the stories of mountain lions released by American servicemen? Can mountain lions be melanistic? Well, I'm sorry to say to the proponents of the big cats in Australia theory, but no. Now, mountain lions, pumas, cougars, whatever you want to call them, these cats, they do exhibit a wide range of coat colours. They can be a very dark, dusky grey to almost completely white, depending on where they live. They are spread quite widely and their colouring seems to reflect the environment they spend most time in. Again, this is quite the evolutionary advantage. But no black mountain lions have ever been documented. And I think this is quite an important point to make as well because the mountain lion populations in both North and South America have been extensively studied. In some states of the United States, every single mountain lion known in that state has a radio collar. These animals have been studied and studied and studied and we have never found a melanistic mountain lion. I think given the intensity of the research done, we'd know by now if melanism was a feature of these animals. But what does this mean then for all these supposed big cat sightings in Australia? I mean, these people saw something after all, and if it wasn't an ABC, an alien big cat, what was it? The first thing to remember with ABC sightings, and this goes for sightings of anything, aliens, cryptids, you name it, the important thing to remember is that people who make these reports are not stupid. They saw something that frightened them, usually only glimpsed it, and our brains are wired to fill gaps with the best information they can. If someone sees something dart across the road in front of their car on a dark night and they don't get a good look at it, but they see it was moving fast and low to the ground, their brain is going to fill in the gaps by thinking about animals that move fast and stay low to the ground. As the person recovers from this startling experience, they start turning it over in their head, and one animal that can move quickly and stays close to the ground is a big cat. This is just one example, of course, but as the brain is going through options, trying to work out exactly what it was you saw, the memory of that incident starts to become clouded with the information that the brain is inputting. The brain is actually capable of making up an entirely fake memory, something that never happened, but you might remember it as clear as day. So looking back at that hypothetical incident there, the actual incident of something big and dark running across the road is expanded on by the brain as it tries to make sense of that until the person is certain that they saw a huge black cat. Maybe there's details been added. It might have had gleaming eyes and a long tail. Once that certainty occurs and people begin to believe that that is what they saw, confirmation bias kicks in. And they'll hone in on aspects of the incident that support this theory. So let's think back to the earlier stories, the 19th century, the Tantanula tiger and others. And in these stories, it is possible, it's even highly probable, that escaped big cats were lurking in the bush for a time. Now, the one thing they all had in common was not only that every cat was coloured. We didn't see tales of black cats, remember, until after the Second World War. But they were always seen around livestock. And I think this is a significant point that 
deserves a little bit more discussion. Now, big cats in their natural environments, when their regular prey becomes scarce, they are known to prey on livestock. The ABCs seen today are not only always black, but they tend to be seen in strange places, very isolated areas of the bush, specifically far away from anything to eat. If they're not preying on livestock, what are they eating? The big cats need on average four to five kilograms of meat a day to remain healthy and they can eat as much as 50 kilograms in one sitting. The birds and small mammals that inhabit the bush just aren't going to cut it. Well, what about wallabies or kangaroos then? I mentioned this earlier and it's possible, certainly, wallabies and kangaroos evolved as prey for dingoes, but even a healthy big cat would have a hard time taking down an adult wallaby or kangaroo. They're incredibly fast, incredibly strong, and we've never seen any definitive evidence of predation on their young either. So unless those big cats are going to head up to Snowy River where the Brumbies are, there's nothing for them to eat. The bush is not full of large animals that they could easily prey on. And when it comes to the Brumbies, as some of you may remember from my previous episode, those populations are so closely tracked and monitored given all the damage they do that if big cats were out there and were preying on them, we'd sure as heck know about it by now. So with that in mind, if they are out there at all, could they still be killing livestock? If there are ABCs in Australia, this would be the obvious thing for them to be preying on. There have been claims of strange livestock deaths that don't match the predation patterns of local predators, such as dingoes or feral dogs. And some farmers have claimed to have found the bodies of missing animals cached in trees. This is a very common behaviour among leopards. They will kill an animal and then hide it in a tree to protect it from other predators. Now, naturally, many people have set up camera traps around those cache kills or set up lookouts as well. But when footage has been captured and analysed by big cat experts, it's generally been debunked as either being images of a large feral cat, and we're going to come to more on those very shortly, or the footage is of such poor quality that nothing can be seen but shadows of movement that could be anything you wanted it to be. There's something else worth saying here too when it comes to sightings of big cats in Australia. There are a lot of hoaxes in this area. The first documented hoax in the story of ABCs was actually in Tantanula about 10 years after the Tantanula tiger scare. Now, even though the dingo that had been causing all the problems had been shot and stuffed and was on display in a hotel, he's still there actually. You can go and visit him today. As the 19th century rolled into the 20th century, sheep began to disappear again at an alarming rate and some people in the area were convinced that the tiger had returned. They hadn't actually caught him the first time and hunting parties were once again being set up. But the culprit wasn't a tiger or a dingo or any kind of furry four-legged animal. This predator walked on two legs. Robert Charles Edmondson was a Tantanula local 
who had been running a large-scale sheep-stealing operation in the area since the earliest days of the Tiger Scare. He used the fear and kept the story alive to cover up his activities. And coming back to the early big cat scares in Australia, interestingly, a lot of them did turn out to be the work of livestock thieves. Your most common big cats, quote-unquote, during these early days of the scares were livestock thieves or dingoes. And we know that hoaxes are still prominent in this area today, although these days they tend to take the form of digitally altered photos and videos or sometimes real photos and videos taken of big cats in their natural habitats, but which are then claimed to have been taken in Australia. Now, people perpetuate hoaxes for all sorts of reasons, and intelligent people are taken in by them regularly. It's not a sign of being stupid or being gullible if you get hoaxed, especially if the hoax seems to confirm something that you already believe. I'm particularly sceptical about the claims of kills cached in trees. This is often presented by ABC enthusiasts as irrefutable proof that big cats must be living in the bush. But I have another theory. Feral cats can climb trees too. And we know that sometimes they do cache their kills up there. They've been caught on camera doing just that. And I promise I am going to talk more about where feral cats fit into this story in a moment. And you know what else can climb trees? People. Putting a dead animal up a tree for a laugh and then leaving it there to decompose until it's impossible to know what killed it and might very well look as if it's been attacked by something strange seems like the perfect way to pull off a big cat hoax to me. And remember those camera traps I mentioned? They're quite common in this area. Lots of people set up cameras hoping to catch evidence of these elusive predators that are supposedly lurking in the bush. But it really leads into another issue with the whole thing. No one has ever got a clear picture of these mysterious black cats, nor has a hunter ever brought one down. In the post-war period, when the mysterious black cat version of the ABC stories began merging, I can see why they weren't photographed. Cameras were cameras were expensive, they were hard to procure, and not everyone had one to begin with. These days, however, almost everyone has an incredibly powerful camera in their pocket at all times. So how is it that we have no clear photographic evidence of these animals? Our phones are capable of capturing fast-moving objects clearly on either photo or video, and we don't need to be connected to a network to take photos either. If these animals really were out there, I think there'd be better photographs by now. What's more, no big cats have ever been shot by hunters or farmers in Australia. For obvious reasons, these people aren't just going to let big cats, if they were lurking around, hang around their livestock. I think if they were out there, we'd have not only clear photographic evidence, but we'd have at least one body by now as well. Such a thing would also be impossible to cover up given the sensation it would generate. So I'm pretty confident that no big cats have ever been shot in the wild in Australia. But what about claims that it has been covered up? What about the stories that there really are big cats out there? And the government 
is secretly keeping it on the sly. Well, it's absolutely worth touching on this and I'm going to do so right after this break. Who doesn't love a good tale of a government cover-up? They're ubiquitous in our society and governments over the years have not helped themselves by engaging in real cover-ups, which then spur stories about the more unlikely ones. Now, looking at cover-ups in general, they occur when governments do things which are illegal or which might technically be legal but would not enjoy public support. In Australia in uh, June and July of 2023, details emerged of the former coalition government receiving advice that their robo-debt scheme, which I don't have time to discuss in detail for my overseas listeners, but there's plenty of good information about it online if you're interested. I recommend starting with The Guardian. Was completely illegal, but they covered this up and put the scheme into motion anyway. These are the kinds of things that governments cover up, and All of them have one thing in common. They directly benefit the government. Cover-ups are risky because if they become public knowledge, they can cause the downfall of not only individual politicians, but entire governments as well. By their nature, they're also duplicitous as they inevitably involve politicians lying to the very people they're supposed to be accountable to. Also, if a government participates in a cover-up and then they get voted out at an election without that cover-up being discovered, the incoming government usually finds out about it and blows the whistle on it. So when it comes to the stories about big cats in Australia and the potential for cover-up, well, these big cat scares have been happening in this country for the last 200 years If there was a government cover-up going on, it would be the largest, most complex operation in this country's post-invasion history. It would have involved the colonial governors and the early forms of colonial parliaments, which were appointed rather than elected, and then their successors, the early elected parliaments, followed by all the successive colonial parliaments and Then, in 1901, it would have meant the newly appointed federal government would have had to have been brought in on this grand conspiracy that the governments of all the former colonies had been working on in the past century, all without anyone leaking anything to the media. And then the federal and state governments would have had to maintain the cover-up throughout all the reforms of the 20th century, all the way up to the modern-day government of today. Do you see, this would be such a mammoth undertaking that it veers from unlikely into near impossible to believe that everyone at every level of government for the last two centuries has been covering up reports of big cats in the bush with everyone remaining loyal, tight-lipped and never leaking even the slightest detail it did. It's so improbable that I'm not even going to comment on it further. Except to say this. Government cover-ups do happen. I'm certainly not denying that. But they happen on small scales, within party rooms or among a small group of ministers. They do not and have never involved the entire apparatus. After all, the more people you bring into a scheme, the less likely you are to be able to keep the thing secret. Also, let's consider this. Why would the government want to cover it up? 
there's no reason to put time, energy and money into a cover-up when there's no benefit to the government in doing so. While it makes for a good story, there's no reason to believe that we don't have definitive proof of big cats in Australia because the government is covering it up. The reason that proof is non-existent is because there are no longer any big cats in Australia. Those that did escape in the 19th century are long gone, although their memory lives on in the local stories and remembered sightings. So, if they aren't here anymore, what are these people seeing? There's two possibilities. The first and most likely explanation is that what people who see or capture grainy video of claim is an ABC is actually a feral cat. Feral cats are a huge problem in Australia and they are one of the leading causes of death for our native birds and for the death of some of our small mammals, such as the bilby, which are already under serious threat. Feral cats have been lurking in the bush since Europeans arrived here. Like the Brumbies, the first feral cats were originally domestic animals that escaped homes, but in the 19th century, there was a deliberate release of cats with the idea that they would reduce the populations of rabbits, rats and mice. Although, like many deliberate feral animal releases of the 19th century, this turned into an unmitigated disaster. The cats found much easier prey in native fauna, which was not as fast and had not encountered cats before. And it's estimated that there are as many as 6.3 million feral cats in Australia today. And much to the alarm of the conservationists, they're getting bigger. Of course, there is a massive difference between an oversized feral cat and a big cat. But when we look at the photos and footage purporting to show ABCs in Australia, they all have something else in common other than being all black and taken in isolated remote parts of the bush. They're usually taken at a distance with nothing to give perspective about how big they are or they're very closely cropped. Again, with the same issue, there's no perspective. Most of us already have a sense of how big a cat is. So if we see one that's a bit bigger than that, that doesn't match our preconceived notion, particularly if it's dark or we've been startled by it in some other way, it might look bigger than it is. I'd also ask, with the greatest respect, how many of us ordinary people could honestly identify a big cat in the wild? Most of us have only seen them in zoos, where they are very well looked after and they're generally kept in peak condition. In the wild, they can look very different. And, as we've established, there's not a lot for a big cat to eat in the Australian bush, so they certainly wouldn't be healthy, lean and sleek if they were wandering around out there right now. Now, these people who are taking these photos and videos do honestly believe what they're seeing is an ABC. Most of the time, of course. As I mentioned earlier, there are plenty of hoaxes out there. Now, the other animal that is commonly mistaken for a big cat when seen at a distance or out of the corner of one's eye is, quite surprisingly, a wallaby. Now, I was really interested to learn about this, but when I was doing the reading, it made sense. Despite the common image of them bounding along on two legs... Wallabies do sometimes move on four legs and especially if seen from the back as they disappear into long grass, they can look very much like a big cat complete with a long tail. 
they're quite large animals too, larger I think than most people anticipate. And they can make a lot of noise when they're moving through the bush. A flash of a tail, a glimpse of fur, the snap of twigs, grass rustling. I can see how a wallaby moving nearby might lead someone to believe they were seeing or hearing a big cat. From there, as I discussed earlier, the brain does the rest and constructs an image from what we think we saw or what we believe was there rather than what actually happened. So, big cats in the bush? Highly unlikely. They have been here in the past. A few scattered escapees from menageries in the circus, but they're long gone now. However, before we close, I want to come back to the story of the Tantanula tiger and back to Walter Taylor, the buggy driver who first saw something which was initially believed to be the livestock thief causing so many problems. Now, as it turned out, he didn't see that animal. But what exactly did he see? He described it as being about 60 centimetres tall, quite thin, with a dark brown coat and white stripes over its rump. From nose to tail, it was about one and a half metres long and it moved quite fast. Taylor saw it in the 1890s in the back country of South Australia and his description matches exactly to the thylacine which we know did survive in the back country of South Australia until at least the 1830s. What's more, scientists have stated that while there's no direct evidence of the thylacine surviving in South Australia beyond the 1830s, it's more than likely that some isolated populations could have survived in these very remote areas right up until the beginning of the 20th century. So maybe, just maybe, Walter Taylor was the last man to see the last thylacine in South Australia. I wonder if he would have taken a closer look had he known what he might have been looking at. Thanks for listening. As always, you can get in touch with me at my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. That's skeptical with a K. Or on social media, I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. Drop in, say hi, give a tip. I'm always open. Next episode, we're going to be examining a ghost story that continues to captivate Melbourne to this day. In 1888, after playing the demon Mephistopheles in the opera Freust, Frerici Baker, a noted British-Italian opera singer, returned to the stage for the curtain call with the rest of the cast at the end of the show. After the performance, he disappeared and the cast were gathered backstage and informed that Frerici had died on the stage, suffering a massive heart attack as he fell through the trap door during the last act of the opera. People were horrified. But how could that be when he joined them on stage after his heart attack for the curtain call? Find out next time on The Skeptical Historian. 
The Skeptical Historian is researched, hosted and produced by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in researching by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects by Adobe Creative Cloud, used under the Adobe Software License Agreement. Pixabay, used under a Creative Commons 4.0 International License. And Epidemic Sound, used under an Epidemic Sound Individual License. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was also used under this license. Podcast hosting is by RSS.com. See you next time, skeptics.